2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash
1: weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jumpstart. Our world is changing fast, and in a time that is forcing positive change, my friends at Jumpstart, a national early education nonprofit, believe that the need for the quality education will only increase, with nearly 25% of all children across the country living in poverty and the widening opportunity gap due to the extended out-of-school time. Jumpstart, whose vision is every child in America enters kindergarten prepared to succeed, teams up with 79 colleges, universities, and community partners across 15 states to provide early learning for over 13,000 and preschool kids and underserved community. At the core of their work is literacy. Their global Read for the Record campaign in the fall engages over 2 million people worldwide to highlight the importance of early literacy and make high-quality books accessible for all children, no matter their color, socioeconomic status, or zip code. Read for the Record participants are encouraged to read the selected book on the same day. This year's campaign book, Evelyn Del Rey is Moving Away, teaches kids about the power of connection, lasting friendships, and coping with change. To all mamas, daddies, educators, book lovers, and beyond, you can support this crucial campaign by visiting readfortherecord.org to purchase the book, donate, or support a classroom in need. I had this conversation with best-selling author Sue monk Kidd for the Friends of the North Castle Public Library event, which was really fun. Her latest book is called The Book of Longings, which is so great, I told my mom she had to go read it. But she is also the author of The Secret Life of Bees, which, of course, went on to become a movie and was a massive, best-selling hit. Her other books include When the Heart Waits, Dance of the Dissident Daughter, The Mermaid Chair, First Light, The Early Inspiration Writings... Traveling with Pomegranates, A Mother-Daughter Story, The Invention of Wings, and, of course, now The Book of Longings. Sue, my kid, serves on the Writers' Council for Poets and Writers and currently lives in North Carolina with her husband, Sandy, and their dog, Barney. So welcome, Sue. Thanks for coming. Oh, well, I'm really honored that you're interviewing me, so that's a thrill. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) And I'm very excited because people here in the chat are like crazy typing comments, which I love. It means everybody's very engaged. So I'll keep reading from there as we go on. Let's start at the beginning with this book. What made you write? Well, maybe quickly tell people, in case there's anyone here who doesn't know what your book is about, can you please explain what the book is about? And then what inspired you to write it?
2: This is a book about Anna. So I like to make the point that it's not a book about Jesus. It's a book about Anna, who happens to marry Jesus. I think a lot of people expected that it would be the life of Jesus through the eyes of Anna, and it's not that either. So it's about her quest, I guess you'd say, her quest to have a voice in the world. She's very ambitious, and she wants to realize all of the largeness in her. She wants to be a scribe. She's a feminist when there wasn't such a thing as that word, (laughs) and she's a writer. So she wants to express herself and fulfill her creative life. And so what we see is her going through many years of seeking that longing and also her relationship with Jesus, which is very significant to her. So they have a great love, really.
0: And how did you come up with this? As I was reading it, I was like, this didn't really happen, right? Is this like an (laughs) undiscovered story that... Nobody knows about that Suman kid somehow. Came, you know, found. How did you come up with this?
2: Yeah, I dug up a jar in Egypt, and I found <laughs> this. <laughs> yeah, that's how it happened. No, let's see. You know, really, Zibby, about fifteen years ago or so, this idea occurred to me. It just lit in my head one day out of absolutely nowhere. You know, when you're in the shower, you get the best thoughts. It was in the shower, and I never really seriously played with that idea the way I would do later. I just noted it. And I thought, maybe one day. And so the idea kind of went in a waiting room and waited all this time. And then in 2014, I was reading about the Gospel of Jesus' Wife, which is a manuscript fragment that a Harvard professor introduced to the world, really. And Jesus refers to his wife in it. Well, it turned out this is a masterful fraud. But I found that completely irrelevant because the minute I read about it, I was so electrified by this idea. And it was like, oh, yeah. And this time I decided I'd take it on. Earlier, I don't think I was ready. I don't think I had the courage. I don't think anyone was ready to read it. But it just seized my imagination. And I think what creativity is really about is the imagery that wells up from God knows where inside of us, the soul, the unconscious. And we play with those images. And uh, creativity is essentially play. And I played with that idea a while and, and thought, yep, I'm meant to do this. Wow.
0: It's amazing to have that conviction and to have the idea stay with you for so long and then be able to see it all the way into everybody's hands. It's amazing. I was really taken by how many. Ways you expressed ideas about a woman's voice and how the voice can get out. And it starts with the incantation bowl that you have Anna write her prayer into. And I'll just read this little prayer for everyone Lord our God, hear my prayer, the prayer of my heart. Bless the largeness inside me, no matter how I fear it. Bless my reed pens and my inks. Bless the words I write. May they be beautiful in your sight. May they be visible to eyes not yet born. When I am dust, sing these words over my bones. She was a voice. So beautiful. So that is sort of what propels and you see the inside of Anna's longings through this bowl. When did you decide or how did you think about the theme of voice and all the different ways that it can play out in the, in the book?
2: It's a theme that's incredibly near and dear to me all the time. I write about this a lot. Ever since I wrote The Dance of the Dissident Daughter, I have been really concerned with particularly women having places to express their voice, or as we say, find your voice or use your voice. And I'm talking about an authentic voice, one that is really true for that individual. So it kind of is innate, I guess. It just matters to me deeply, you know, having grown up in a little town in Georgia, South Georgia, rural area, 3,000 people in the little town when I grew up. In the 60s, I was coming of age in the 50s and 60s, pre-feminist world, I witnessed a lot of things. I mean, this is true about race too, but that's another story, which is why I wrote other books I wrote. But I think we gravitate to things because they matter to us. And so it I guess it comes out of that longing of my own longing, you know, to say something about voice. And that incantation bowl was just a God's gift or something it was this a treasure because I stumbled upon it while rummaging around on the internet. And I had gotten lost from, I couldn't even remember what I had Googled at that point. And there they were suddenly. And, and I thought, Oh, here is a concrete physical object that can hold her longing. And I always liked to have that some sort of iconic something that is not just abstract, oh, my voice, you know, but a a thing that she could carry through the whole novel. So that was why the incantation bulb.
0: Interesting. So how much research did you do? How true to life? I mean, obviously it's impossible to prove, I guess, but how much did you dig up essentially that you put in here that was actually factual because it sounded like it was all factual the way the writing tools and the scrolled papyri and all of the little details that you put in tell me about finding all of that information yes
2: i guarantee you that's all factual <laughs> because i i spent 14 months researching this novel before i started writing And I wanted so desperately to get it all right and to layer it full of rich, authentic details. So, I mean, I started by reading, of course. I collected a lot of books and just read constantly all day long for days and months. And I watched documentaries. I listened to the great courses on all kinds of topics where you have lecturers from universities giving lectures I traveled some to museums, and I mean there's a museum in Ireland, which, of course, I'm now forgetting the name of. But I walked through there, and there were all of these ivory sheets that had been beaten down that were at the same time of the first century that I could see all of these different ways, things you could write on palm leaves. So I just walked around with a notebook for about a year and a half, and um, recorded everything I could and learned everything I could and kept notebooks full of notes. I actually think I over-researched.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I, Cause I feel like your book was not only a story and a love story and almost like a coming of age, but it was also a history book because now I was just telling this to my husband. I was like, I feel like now I understand I have a visual for that entire period of time. I can imagine, you know, walking down these paths and how I would, you know, what the rooms would look like. Every little thing you literally created like a perfect replica of a world that now is in my imagination and everybody else's. It's really so impressive. I know that other novels do that, but the authenticity factor is just like, sky high. I have to wow. say. <laughs> so well, I do
2: know. know that if there is a tree or a food in that book, it was real. You know, I would have to stop writing a lot and just make sure, look up something if I wanted to be sure that it was current at the time. It was quite something. But I I sort of enjoyed the research and got a little carried away with it probably.
0: (laughs) Did it come from your research the moment when Anna, and I won't give anything away, but was going through something very emotional for her and she just needed to write about, which anybody who's listening can probably identify with that feeling when you just, something is, you just have to write. And so she ends up breaking a pot or her. Actually, it was her aunt who broke the pot on her behalf. And she ended up writing all over the shards of pot pieces. Did people really do that? And should I go try it? What do you think? Have you tried it? No, but I would like to.
2: (laughs) Sometimes I have tried things. I haven't tried that one. I remember when I wrote The Secret Life of Bees, I knelt on grits, which is something my character did. And that was really painful. But no, they did actually do that because it was an inexpensive way. Paper was, you know, rare and precious and people could write on, I mean, broken pottery. So,
0: and The idea that Anna was going to get in trouble for stealing a piece of ivory on which they <laughs> used to write, the thought that a piece of paper, I mean, which just seems so expendable these days. I mean, obviously there's awareness of the trees and, you know, we're not being unkind to the environment, but just like the prevalence of paper versus what they had to go through and all the hurdles to writing. Do you feel like, I know you referenced your, your childhood a little, but do you feel like you had any stumbling blocks in pursuing your career as an author? I mean, there seemed like there were so many hurdles for Anna to jump over. I'm sure they weren't that extreme, but there must be something that you can relate to in that from your own life.
2: Well, of course, you know, I, I wanted to, I mean, Anna is, I admit, similar to me in many ways. <laughs> She's probably the character I drew on more than any other, drew on myself more than any other character I've written. But yes, I think probably the biggest hurdle for me growing up was that A failure of courage to really pursue what I wanted to do, which was to write. I think I was born to write. I mean, I feel that strongly. And I don't know if there's something innate in us. All I know is that when I was very young, I started telling people I wanted to be a writer. And it was like this little flame, a little light inside that I had. And then, of course, I lost it. (laughs) And I can't not say that it wasn't something about the cultural milieu I was in, too, because my guidance counselor in high school actually said to me, you know, well, you really ought to consider doing something practical. What if something happened? (laughs) This is what we heard in the 60s. What if something happened to your husband? You need something to fall back on. So this is the kind of nonsense, you know, (laughs) that we were plied with, but I was... 17, 18, and I decided I would do something practical. So I studied nursing, and I got a BS degree in nursing, and I worked as a nurse until I was 30 years old. And that's when I just said, I can't do this anymore. I'm just homesick for myself, and I'm homesick for my little light. (laughs) So I started writing
0: That's so beautiful, being homesick for yourself. That's a great way to say that. It's amazing. So then how did you do it? How did you just, how did you switch gears? And did you just walk in one day and say, I quit? And then you sat down and started writing? (laughs) It couldn't have been that easy. How did you do it? And how did you go from there to a 30-year career of writing? And so so many successful books at that. Well,
2: it wasn't an overnight thing. I I loved when people said, The Secret Life of Bees was an overnight success because I had been writing for so long. The Secret Life of Bees, my first novel, was published when I was 53. I started writing at 30. And the way it began was I just made, I seized my intention again, and I made an announcement to my toddlers (laughs) who were eating breakfast and my husband, and they all looked at me like, okay, mom. And... I took a course, you know, a a writing course at the local college. And I didn't know what I was doing, really. I didn't know much about writing. I just knew that I had this impulse of the heart to do it, a passion to do it. And the way I think I developed writing was I learned everything I could about the craft. I went to writers' conferences. I read books about writing. And then I read good fiction, you know, that intimidated the heck out of me. So it was, and just writing and writing and writing and trying to find my voice. So I freelanced and I wrote nonfiction and I wrote essays and I did that for a while. And then I began publishing some nonfiction memoir type books. Oh, I didn't start fiction until I was in my forties.
0: Wow. I feel like it's such a gift. And I think that's what draws me to talking to authors all the time. How do you create these worlds, especially even on a world that's actually our world and just in another time? but and make it just so intricate and so many facets. I mean, all your characters felt so real to me, like they could just walk in the door, (laughs) essentially. How do you do such a great job with character development as one of many things that you did well, but how do you make them so real? They're very
2: real to me. So because maybe they're very real to me, I can transmit some of that, I hope. I write in first person. I always tell myself one day I'm going to write a book in third person and it never happens. I always revert back to first person because it is so intimate. It allows me to just drop into the character and I just try to see the world through her eyes and feel it with her heart. And I think I know her so well, usually by the time I start writing, I have no idea. Part of it is probably a mystery. I just try to write the intimate spaces of her heart or the character's heart and just hope that the reader identifies with her and has the same empathetic participation that I'm having with her.
0: Well, you certainly succeeded. Tell me about the religious aspect. Obviously, a book about a purported wife of Jesus, you can't get away from the fact that this has religious implications for any group, any person reading the book. How did your own sort of beliefs play into the book and the story? And what do you think life would be like if this had been the actual story of the world?
2: Well, I think the world would be very different to answer your last question first. That occurred to me right away. I remember thinking almost the first day that this idea struck me not the first time but the the last time and i remember thinking if she existed my god she would be the most silenced woman in history and it made me want to give her a voice so desperately i mean i grew up in this little town as i said where we had two churches there was no jewish synagogue we only had a Methodist church and a Baptist church. So you had to belong to one or the other, or you were just, you know, a pagan. And there were none of those. Everybody went to church. And so I was schooled in that. And I have a very distinct memory of one Sunday, I'll make this short. One Sunday, a visiting minister came to our little Baptist church. And I remember sitting by my mom. I was 11, I think. and. He gave the order of the hierarchy of authority in the human world. And it was God, man, woman, children, or something like that. And I was outraged. (laughs) You know, I was just shocked and outraged and anger. And my mother later would say, I think it all started right there. (laughs) And maybe so. So I had an uneasy relationship with the church, probably all through my childhood and adolescence. But at the same time, I have a very contemplative kind of soul and a longing to have a spiritual life. And I do have a spiritual life. It's just much bigger than Christianity. And I'm a cultural Christian. That's That metaphoric story of Christianity still speaks to me. So I have a lot of background in that. And I'm sure that showed up. There is one last thing I'll say about this, and that is there's a line in the Book of Longings where... Anna says something like, well, she's in this cave and she's just, she's having this conversation with Jesus. I think it's their second meeting. And she says something like, why don't we just free God? And he says, he laughs and he says, yes, I I would like to see how that happens or something like that. Well, a lot of my religious life has been about trying to free God, our narrow concepts of God and to give us a sense of, of equality in our imagery of what is divine. So I actually think and believe a lot like Anna did in this story. <laughs>
0: the jig is up. We know uh, <laughs> all your innermost thoughts now. One of the times when, when Anna is talking to Jesus, she was asking, she overhears him saying, referring to God as the father. And she hadn't heard that before. And he, she asks him, what's this about? Why are you calling God father? Because at the time that hadn't happened. And he said, the practice is new to me. When my father died, I felt his absence like a wound. One night in my grief, I heard God say to me, I will be your father now. And then Anna says, God speaks to you. And he says, only in my thoughts. So I thought that was so interesting how now, of course, that's like common parlance. Everybody does it without thinking God, the Father, blah, blah, blah. And this is, this perhaps is where it came from. Is this part of research or this is speculation? Well, I think
2: Christians probably mostly think Jesus started this. But my research showed that it was not uncommon at all for Jewish men in the first century to refer to God as Father but it was an intimate way to do it. And it was, the word was Abba. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jesus, of course, made it quite popular. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and also the turn the other cheek, you attribute to Mary.
2: <laughs> yeah, I got away with that maybe. I don't know. <laughs> you
0: know, I think she probably had a lot to
2: do with her son's success maybe, or who he was as a human being, which was, quite amazing. And, you know, moms don't always get the credit there, do you? So I was determined that she was going to, this human Mary was going to get some credit for Jesus. And he learned from her. And I had that be her line that she taught him. But he was, he learned pretty well.
0: So it's Mary as the ultimate Jewish mother, apparently. Yes, (laughs) compelling about her son. Love it. (laughs) This is just a tiny point, but one way that women were sort of asserting their will, which was they almost had nothing they could do, was taking all these herbs to prevent themselves from getting pregnant, which I didn't know they had been doing back then as a form of birth control and all the rest. Tell me about that line of research.
2: Oh, that was absolutely fascinating. I mean, women had a lot more access to things than we can imagine, They knew how to abort children. They knew how to take herbs to encourage getting pregnant when they were barren. They knew how to prevent pregnancies. It was a fail-proof by any means. But the midwives, the wise women they were called, typically controlled that and women went to them. And it was sort of a secret world for them. So I'm not sure I could even tell you what all they were right now, but they were accurate in the book. (laughs) Wow. I'm
0: just Um, glad we live
2: today and not then.
0: (laughs) No kidding. Oh my goodness. So tell me, you spent 14 months researching. Tell me about what happens after that. Do you write like right in this room that we're looking at you in now? Do we, where is it, where do you do your writing? Do you do how do you do your outlining? Tell me about the process a little more, please.
2: Yes, this is my writing study, I call it. And I do an outline in an unusual way, probably. I call it a collage, but I think there's a better term for it that's more literary. It's probably a storyboard. No, it's something else. But anyway, I will take all kinds of postcards and like I'm a child at kindergarten and I cut out images that speak to me, that actually hook my unconscious. This is how I do every novel. So I'm very visual and they'd be huge boards that I'll put up with all of these images all over them. And they evoke something for me. It could be emotion, it could be a character, It could be some piece of something that, a description, but mostly it's about the story itself and how that narrative is going to unfold in the book. So I start with that. And then I like to know two things when I start writing. And until I know them, I can't really start writing. And they are, who is my character? Who is she? It's usually a she. And I will spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. And the other question is, what does she want? And that is the seminal question for me. If I know what my character wants, I can write the book because it's all about that for me. And so I write down the opening scene. I know the last scene usually and sort of vaguely what's going to happen in the between. And then I start writing.
0: Wow. And how long did that take, at least for this book? Well, the whole thing
2: took four and a half years counting that research, so another three years.
0: Wow.
2: Oh, I'm slow, Zibby.
0: <laughs> Whatever you're doing, it's working. Don't change a thing. <laughs> the, the pace you need to keep. Meticulous process, yeah. Someone in the comments is saying how much they'd love to see the board for this book. Do you still have it, the vision board? or?
2: What? Oh, of course, yeah. I have it somewhere. It's buried in the closet. But I'm creating a new one now that I can't even talk about. Don't even ask me. <laughs> Because it's so new. But another thing I do is I create a, what I call a plot clothesline. And I, I have a line and I hang the scenes on it. And I can move them around. And Because often, like with the Invention of Wings, I had two narrators, two main characters. And I had to have two clotheslines. So I do things like that, you know, to help me navigate the story and keep up with what's going on.
0: That's great. I can just imagine you with your little clothes hooks or what do those <laughs> called um laundry hooks whatever. That's fantastic. So you can't say a word about your new book? Have a little something? It's
2: not a historical novel. I'll tell you what it isn't. It's okay. not a historical novel. So I've done the last two were going back further and further in time. <laughs> no, but I'm going to write pretty much close to the present and Oh my, what else could I say that's really vague?
0: <laughs> is it post COVID, pre COVID, or do you not address COVID? I know that's been a topic of conversation. Yeah.
2: Well, you said shortly before COVID, but I have to think about that whether we're going to include that or not. I think this is going to be a big question for authors.
0: Yes. Do you have, I know you've given lots of tips already about the way you approach learning how to write, but would you have advice for? other aspiring authors at this point?
2: Well, authors always have a little bit of advice and it's typically things like read a lot. My advice about reading is read at the level you want to write, which is why it's so intimidating. And then realize that you can never achieve that idea in your head and that it's always going to come out less than you imagined. Let yourself write badly initially. And for me, it's all about rewriting, and I rewrite as I go. A lot of writers say, don't do that, but that's the only way I can do it. I need to get it just right for myself before I can go on. So when I finish a book, it's pretty much done. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it took three and a half, four
0: years, you. yeah. (laughs) I don't want to go over time here. Someone's saying, by the way, the ending for Anna was very satisfying in case you were worrying about that. So satisfying ending all around. I'm Um, very glad to hear that. (laughs) And other comments, thanking you for everything and all the rest and how brave you are writing and how inspirational and just Mm. all of it. So, and... uh,
2: can, Can I just thank all of them and say thank you for being readers and for reading my work if you do I appreciate it very much I do not take one of you for granted and I think about my readers when I'm writing a lot you know what would they like to hear what do they need that's why my endings will never be really tragic (laughs) you can count on that
0: thank you so much thank you thank you Zibby Thanks again to Jumpstart, whose campaign Read for the Record begins this fall. Go to readfortherecord.org to purchase Evelyn Del Rey is Moving Away to help donate and support a classroom in need and help Jumpstart reach their goal of achieving early literacy for everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.